This year's back-to-back G7 and NATO summits were more than just a parade of endless meetings. For one, the NATO meeting ended with Finland and Sweden just steps away from becoming new members. 30 NATO allies have signed off on the accession protocols for Sweden and Finland. NATO members also presented a united front against Russia's assault on Ukraine. Transatlantic unity has been and will continue to be the greatest strength in our response to Russia. But in the five months since Russia's invasion, the American public's attention has turned back to problems at home. And U.S. President Joe Biden hasn't gotten a good grade for his handling of them. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. It's Friday, July 8, 2022. Today, can President Biden's push to spread democracy abroad help him deal with various crises back home? L.A. Times White House reporter Eli Stokels recently accompanied Biden on his tour of Europe. Eli, welcome to The Times. Hey, thanks for having me. So NATO, just to remind folks, was set up decades ago to counter the threat of the Soviet Union. And leaders just wrapped up their summit last week in Madrid, while most folks in the U.S. were thinking of uh, other things. What was the mood like over there at NATO? You know, it's a busy week and a historic summit, and they are dealing with an ongoing war in Ukraine. I mean, these are very consequential summits back to back. The Right Honourable Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But there was an awareness also that for all the good feeling among the leaders who were there... Her Excellency Ms. Meta Frederiksen, Prime Minister of the Kingdom of Denmark. ...that they were all dealing with really difficult situations domestically, maybe no one more so than President Biden. Honourable Joe Biden, President of the United States of America. You just couldn't avoid the awareness that all this was happening against the backdrop of real domestic upheaval with the row ruling, inflation continuing, just so much going on at home. You know, not that it's not important that the West is trying to figure out how to stay united and how to continue to support Ukraine in a war that does not look to have any end in sight at this point. So fun, wasn't it? Don't you love those leader photos? I just love it. It's I so love dynamic. them. I know. You know, you have a lot of time when you're waiting to go into some of these rooms where the leaders are or when you're just gathering in the press file and, and killing time, eating bad sandwiches out of a cooler. Huh. You have time to interact with other members of the press from other countries. And that was a lot of the conversation. What is it like over there? How bad is it? How hard has it been for Biden? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Those are the questions that folks have. I mean, there's an awareness that he's stuck around 40 percent with his approval rating. You did mention Russia earlier and Ukraine, and that obviously was one of the big items for the summit. And actually, it led to a new strategic concept to outline NATO's objectives in the next decade. What, what does that entail? Right. This had not been updated in 12 years. And, you know, if you step back, the first NATO summit I covered was in 2018 in Brussels when Donald Trump was there and threatening to pull out of the alliance altogether. He spent days arguing some members are freeloading off the U.S. by not spending enough on defense. With the schmucks and the pain for the whole thing. Calling it unacceptable. And it was a really chaotic summit. And to contrast this, which, yes, it's taking place with war, a ground war in Europe for the first time in decades, really, since NATO's founding. 
the sense of cohesion among the leaders of NATO and the G7 was just so different from what we saw a few years ago. This war has brought the alliance back together, given it new life, new purpose. And you saw at the NATO summit, really, the organization leveraging the war in a way to strengthen the alliance itself. And the strategic concept, what it says is that they're going to beef up NATO's troop presence in the eastern flank, the eastern part of the alliance, close to Russia. President Biden says America's military presence in Europe is about to get bigger. In Poland, we're going to establish a permanent headquarters, the U.S. 5th Army Corps, and uh, strengthening our U.S.-NATO interoperability across the entire eastern flank. The president says he's also boosting rotational troop deployments to Romania and the Baltics, sending more fighter jet squadrons to the U.K., more air defenses and other capabilities to Germany and Italy. And you have allies committing to actually increase their defense spending, the thing that President Trump was berating them and telling them they had to do. This is just a total sea change in the security architecture of Europe and the entire transatlantic alliance. Overall, through NATO, in terms of high readiness troops, they're going to go from about 40,000 to within a year, around 300,000. It's just so much different. And then you also at this summit had Finland and Sweden officially being invited to join the alliance. These are two countries. Finland has an 800-mile border with Russia. They have been strategically neutral throughout the Cold War and afterwards. And all these moves push the alliance to that brink of confrontation with Russia. How risky is all of this? And how is Russian President Vladimir Putin responding? Well, so Putin uh, is very aware of all of this and really sent a message when the G7 opened, he stepped up attacks on Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, which had kind of seen the fighting go elsewhere over the last month or two. Russian missiles have shattered weeks of relative calm in Ukraine's capital. There were attacks on civilian buildings, you know, apartment buildings in Kyiv. The attack came with Western leaders meeting in Europe, preparing to reaffirm their support for Ukraine and condemnation of Russia. The next day, there was a brutal missile attack on a very crowded shopping mall in the middle of Ukraine, killed a lot of people. Long-range bombers struck the shopping mall in the afternoon with more than 1,000 people inside. These are really horrible messages that Vladimir Putin is sending to the West, saying, I see you all gathering together and vowing your resolve. Well, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, this war is by no means settled. The end is still sort of murky. Coming up after the break, how the Group of Seven is taking on Russia and China. Eli, during his trip to Europe, President Biden also attended the G7 summit in Germany. And just a reminder for the audience, the membership for this includes seven of the world's most advanced economies. And there they outline more defense aid for Ukraine. What else did they accomplish? There are a couple other things that are interesting, although they're not fully cooked. One is a proposal or sort of a, a loose agreement to task the finance ministers of these countries to perhaps go ahead and set a price cap on Russian oil exports to cap the price so that when Russia continues to sell its oil around the world and fund this war, that they're not 
able to take in quite as much money. It's a novel concept. It's not really clear if every country will go along with that. But that would be a really extraordinary step if that comes to pass. And the other thing is this infrastructure bank. A year ago at Cornwall at the last G7, President Biden's first, the leaders outlined this plan to invest a lot of money to set up a bank, basically, where the developing world, smaller countries, could go to get financing for infrastructure projects. Because up until this point, when countries have needed that kind of money, China has been the one providing it through the Belt and Road Initiative. The G7 is really intent on lessening China's influence around the world, on giving developing countries uh, loan options that do not come with strings attached. Nothing really happened over the last year. Now they are outlining a plan to spend a lot of money, $600 billion, about a third of which will come from the United States. That really is the biggest component out of the G7 when it comes to trying to address China's growing influence and to have a more muscular alternative coming from the G7 in the West. China also came up during the NATO summit. Here's the alliance's secretary general, Jens Stoltenberg, talking about that strategic concept. It will address China for the first time and the challenges that Beijing poses to our security, interests and values. What are these challenges that he mentions? The NATO strategic concept for the first time mentioned China and it linked Russia and China as allies, uh, as partners in this broader conflict for and against democracy, for principles of freedom. That's pretty interesting that NATO, which is, you know, again, 30 going on 32 countries, feels the need to mention China. This is a transatlantic alliance historically. This has not really given much thought to what's going on in the Pacific. The more that the alliance is unified, the more that Europe pulls its own weight in its own uh, security and defense. I think that is something that is pretty significant and will be seen in Beijing because now the U.S. may be a little freer to deal with China uh, since it's not propping up NATO and European security all on its own. Yeah. How how did uh, Chinese officials respond? I mean, they didn't like it. You know, (laughs) basically, they don't like being called out. China has reprimanded NATO for what it calls the alliance's Cold War mentality. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman also said NATO should give up the practice of creating enemies. The fact that a lot of U.S. allies from the region, from the Indo-Pacific, showed up at this NATO summit, Australia, New Zealand, India, Japan, these are not NATO members. The Chinese can say whatever they want, but they can see the other powers in their region aligning more closely with the West. And that is significant. If the G7 gets its act together with the infrastructure bank, if there is ultimately a resolution in Europe where the war ends, Ukraine survives, the West holds, that's going to be pretty meaningful because the message will have been sent not just to Russia, but to Beijing as well. Yeah, again, all of this is happening. All these big geopolitical international issues are happening, and Biden is being good at this. But you reported that world leaders at both the G7 and NATO summits were sharing concern, even pity, for the state of democracy back in the United States. The United States is such a powerful symbol to its allies and so many people around the world that to see, just before the G7 began, to see that ruling uh, from the Supreme Court taking away the federal protections for abortion, there were a lot of leaders that just were very vocal about how dispiriting that was. You know, as much as they say, oh, Biden still has our confidence, they can read the same polls that we all can 
And when 85% of Americans say that the country is on the wrong track, that's concerning. That's concerning for people in other foreign capitals who want to work with the United States, but who are trying to figure out, well, how much money do we really invest in this infrastructure bank? Will this be around in three years? Right? Will this continue to be an initiative that the U.S. supports if elections go a different way and Joe Biden's no longer the president? And so it's complicated for a lot of these other leaders for American allies to sort of figure out how much skin to put in the game. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. President Biden's final press conference in Madrid, I'd say about half the questions were about domestic issues, about abortion. I can understand why the American people are frustrated because of what the Supreme Court did. I can understand why the American people are frustrated because of inflation. And I just think there's no escaping that. And that continues to be the focus at home. uh, And everybody's aware of that. We're better positioned to deal with this than anyone, but we have a way to go. And the Supreme Court, we have to change that decision by codifying Roe v. Wade. Coming up after the break, can Biden's international push boost Democrats' chances in the midterms? Because right now, it's not looking good. Eli, there's been general support for uh, Biden's policy on Ukraine, but a lot of that hasn't translated into a better approval numbers back home. That's true. And this is a White House that's just been sort of stuck for several months. And they're not really sure what to do about it, honestly. And, and you can kind of see that there's no answer. They know that inflation and the rising cost of gas and other consumer goods is really hurting them. And that is largely a consequence of the war. They have tried to explain that. They have tried to say again and again, look, this is Putin's price hike. But, you know, I think that after months of this, not being able to move the numbers, that people don't want an explanation. They just want the gas prices to come down. They don't care whether it's Biden's fault or not Biden's fault. Biden's the president. They're paying more. They're frustrated. There was a very interesting question at the press conference that the president did just before flying home from Madrid last week when he was asked, How long is it fair to expect American drivers and drivers around the world to pay that premium for this war? Should Americans be willing to indefinitely pay this much for gas as long as Ukraine continues to need to fight this war? And he said yes. He said yes. As long as it takes. So Russia cannot, in fact, defeat Ukraine and move beyond Ukraine. And so that was a very blunt an honest response. That's the White House's thinking on this. But the person who's enduring political pain here is President Biden. It's Democrats. So how then does Biden sell what he's doing on the foreign stage, even if people support him for it, when they're more concerned about the problems right here in front of them and there doesn't seem to be any solution to them in sight? Yeah, I don't know that there is. I mean, he has gone out and given a whole lot of speeches. He has played with the language. He has stood in the port of Los Angeles. He has talked about supply chain issues. He has tried to explain why costs are high. He has tried to put the pressure on oil and gas companies to produce more. He has railed against some of these shipping conglomerates that he says are are price gouging. He has tried to put the onus in part on the private sector while also explaining, look, this is just a consequence of this struggle for democracy in Europe. It's just not clear that that's going to really work politically in the short term. This is a long-term commitment in Ukraine. 
the elections in America, most elections in other countries, these are short-term calculations that voters are making. How am I doing right now? And, and when the answer is, I'm paying more, I'm frustrated, you know, a lot of times voters seek a change. Finally, Eli, Biden hasn't been afraid to go big and be bold on the world stage. Why can't he muster that same sort of assertiveness for solutions here at home? Well, I think those who are more sympathetic to the president and the stress of the job and the limitations of the job will tell you correctly that presidents have always had more latitude in foreign policy. There are just fewer constraints, fewer checks on his power than there are in passing domestic policy where you have the Congress that a lot of the stuff needs to go through. And then you have the courts that can always nullify legislation and change things afterwards. That's fair. That's true. But Biden is an institutionalist, right, at his core. He talks about it. It's, it's pretty clear. He sees NATO as an institution right now that needs shoring up. New strategic concept, new members coming in, Finland and Sweden. In his closing press conference, he said that this summit was a response to the world as it is now. This summit was about strengthening our alliance, meeting the challenges of our world as it is today, and the threats we're going to face in the future. That's why they're making these moves. That's why they're updating the strategic concept, putting more troops in Europe, committing billions of dollars to Ukraine in defense aid. And I think whether it's fair or not, the way it presents is a lot of conviction and certainty and action in foreign affairs juxtaposed with a president who, with all the chaos in the United States, the Supreme Court and the Senate and all these counter-majoritarian institutions in our own democracy, making our democracy really less and less representative, giving the minority more and more power. This is a president who has not expressed any support for making any structural changes to stabilize American democracy. You know, there is some frustration that you're starting to hear more and more from within the Democratic Party and the Democratic base, that this just isn't, is a president who's telling you what he's not willing to do, but does not seem to project or convey the same frustration and outrage that the base feels in seeing abortion rights rolled back, in seeing this Supreme Court veering off in a more activist, conservative direction. People want to see more fight from this president on the left and more resolve, more conviction. That's not, to this point, who this president has been. He's been trying to be more unifying in the way he talks about things, trying to talk about bipartisan solutions, and in some ways, to a lot of people, seems increasingly sort of out of step with this moment that he finds himself in. All right, guys. I'm... No, there's no such thing as a quick one. I'm out of here. Thank you all very much. Eli, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, and Surya Hendry were the jefas on this episode, and Mike Heflin mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistants are Madeline Amato and Carlos Deloera. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this madre. Gracias. Gracias.